Okay. You gonna hear me? Okay, cool. Uh, good morning. So glad you're here. My name is Rich Lynn. Uh, I serve as one of the elders here at Jacob's Well. Uh, we're currently in our series, Faithful to the Core, uh, which we spend the first few weeks of every calendar year revisiting our core identities as a community. They are the icons you see on the back here. And today uh, I'm going to talk about politics some more. I'd also like to announce my uh, a candidacy for President of the United States. I'm just kidding. No, don't uh, Mark, Mark Campoli told me to say that. Uh, if you've noticed, uh, we, we uh, will have sp spent a little more time than usual on this thoughtfully engaged core identity. Uh, this the one, uh, which one is it? The city one, right? Oh, gosh. Anyway, um, we'll have spent more time on it, and this is purposeful. Uh, so with our focus this year on evangelism, with 2024 being an election year, it's crucial for us as a community to really understand what it means to be thoughtfully engaged both here within the church and also outside these walls. So we're very aware that we're living in a cultural moment where politics can not only be extremely divisive, but they can also be intertwined with our identity, and it becomes very difficult to separate the two. We're also aware that in the past few decades, the uh, evangelical church in America, uh, we haven't handled politics well. Uh, the church uh, should shoulder some of the blame that, uh, for the kind of divisive environment that we currently find ourselves in. And, you know, when the church starts to take words from political talking points more seriously than the words of Jesus, then we have lost our way. Uh, there's some work to be done. Uh, before we get into it, uh, I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for, uh, thank you that we're all here this morning. Uh, politics is an area of life that is a discipleship issue. Uh, it needs to be submitted to you. Uh, we know that you give us a lot of grace because you love us, but you also call us to be and to live differently for your glory and to love others. And this is especially relevant here, so give us uh, ears to hear and understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Pastor Scott kicked off a part one of this little mini-series. If you weren't here and you missed it, I highly encourage you to go back to the website and to listen to it, uh, because uh, when we talk about politics here, we always want to have the focus of what does it mean to be distinctly Christian in our place and time in this particular aspect of our culture and politics. Last week, the big aha moment for me was when Pastor Scott was going through the passage in Romans 13 where the Apostle Paul is calling Christians to be subject to the uh, to secular governments. Uh, in doing so, Paul was drawing a distinction between the role of the church and the role of government. And the distinction is the way in which power is used or wielded. And the government is meant to have a place in society to create and enforce just laws using coercive power. And the church is meant to be a place of non-coercive power 
And while the church can speak into governments and influence them, we should not seek to gain that same coercive power just so we can get our way. And so it's super helpful to think, uh, to, to think that way when we're navigating our role as a church and the relationship between us and government. For today, uh, I want to focus on guiding us in some practical ways to be distinctly, distinctly Christian in our political involvement. Uh, specifically, Brian, you can put up the first. No, not that one. Do I not have another one? Okay, close that one, not that one. All right, anyway, man, we had some, I had some PowerPoint issues this morning. Um, so specifically, I want to talk about uh, how, how do we have, one, a healthy, biblical, God-honoring engagement with politics? And two, second, a th how do we have a thoughtful engagement with others, especially with those who you disagree with? How many of you have ever had an art class where you had to paint or draw a bowl of fruit? Anybody who did this? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty common assignment. I think my bowl of fruit was like a pencil drawing. Uh, so usually when you do an art assignment like this, at the end of it, uh, the, at the end of it, all the assignments, all the paintings, drawings are hung up and displayed together like at an art night. And so when you stand there, you, you observe these pieces side by side. You uh, notice that no two look exactly the same, right? They may look similar uh, because everyone's working on the same thing. But there's some variations, you know, some shading might be different. Proportions are different. You know, my pair may be more deformed than the others. But you know what you're looking at. We're, we're looking at a bowl of fruit. And so if you see a painting of a cat, you know someone did the assignment wrong. So, you know, as tra traditionally as Christians, uh, specifically American Christians, uh, church in the past 30 years or so, we've approached faith and politics like, uh, less like an art project and more like a paint by numbers. Are you guys that did paint by numbers? Yeah. Uh, you know, when you ask questions like, what should the political life of a faithful Christian look like? And then we, ha we were handed paint and a brush and a template, and we get the right color in the right spot where, uh, with the right number. And so you will have things like, statements like, the Bible says this, so you should vote this way on this issue. This politi political candidate or party believes this which goes against this verse in the Bible. So if you support that candidate, you're going against God's word. And that's paint by numbers, right? It's easy, it's clear cut, but it doesn't produce the thoughtful, nuanced, and God-honoring political engagement that we hope our community can have and that those who claim to follow Jesus, we should strive for. And so today, we're gonna approach faith and politics like an art project and not like paint by numbers. So what's our bowl of fruit? When we make decisions on how we are to live out our faith in the political realm, what should that look like and how do we get there? And so to do this assignment properly and up, end up with a bowl of fruit instead of a cat, we need some guidelines and some tools. And so there are many, and we're not going to be able to cover all of them today, uh, but I hope to 
just get us started um, and uh, go over a couple of them. So guideline number one, we must be formed more by Jesus and his word than we are formed by politics. And so now we can put that slide up. I want to share this Facebook post all the way back from 2008 on election night. The parties involved have been blotted out for privacy. This person wrote, um, thinks that everyone won't be so happy when Iran nukes us. Serious stuff. Um, so it's, uh, so, you know, basically it's a comment on, you know, how, you know, this one president, President Obama was elected, and at the time, it's still relevant, Iran was enriching uranium, trying to get a nuclear weapon, and just expressing that, you know, President Obama couldn't handle it. Uh, so who wrote this? Next slide. I wrote that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that was, that was me back in 2008. And the first comment you'll notice is you, dot, dot, dot. And that's more of a, facepalm type you. Uh, so who wrote that one? My wife. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, apparently, yeah, we, we have had that, had had that discussion. She told me to stop posting controversial stuff online. And I didn't listen. And it's a funny thing, I was wondering why there's no facepalm emoji, and I looked it up, and uh, that the facepalm emoji had not been created. It, uh, it was 2016 was when that when the facepalm thing came out. But I think if it had been in 2008, that would have been there. Uh, what's the third one? The third one is, uh, you know, that's one of many reasons some people won't be happy for four years, can't even type a smiley. Who wrote that one? They're not here. I'm not going to. I'm not going <laughs> to explain. Don't worry. Yeah, they're definitely not here. Uh, so, you know, this 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 is fairly fairly tame. You know, especially consider the current social media environment that, that 15 years later, the type of vitriol, rhetoric, uh, divisive content, you found it, find it all over the internet. Uh, and, you know, I actually I have a very clear memory of posting this. I remember where I was, remember what I was feeling, I remember what I was thinking, what I was hoping to accomplish by putting this up. And it is a very limited circle. You know, I wasn't putting it out there. Uh, and I remember this, and I wasn't posting it for humor. I wasn't trying to be funny. I, was, I put it up because I was frustrated that my guy lost. And I wanted to put something up that was just outlandish enough, hopefully stir the pot with all the people who are celebrating Pres President Ob Obama's election and let people know that what I thought. You know, I thought he was wrong for the country. And I wanted to get people who agreed with me to cheer me on. This is not this is not thoughtful engagement, you know. And I, the point for me sharing this is, the post that I put up back in the day showed that I was deeply influenced by politics. In in many ways, I wasn't even aware. You know, although it, it wasn't explicitly taught, you know, my church environment growing up was very aligned with, you know, the moral majority movement of the '80s. I'm sure you're familiar with that. You know, you're supposed to vote based on values, family values. Christians 
are supposed to be conservative. And, and so you're supposed to be Republican. And from there, I just bought in wholesale with everything the party stood for and represented. And as the years went on, I added to my views through books, articles, commentators, and just continued to build up my way of thinking. Politics and faith were deeply intertwined in ways that sometimes were indistinguishable from each other. And that was my specific experience. I think many of you can identify with that. Uh, it can, and, but it could be, politics and faith can be intertwined for people throughout the whole political spectrum. So I want to share a quote with you. Uh, one of the books I read to prep for today is called The Ballot in the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go from Here. Red book. Everyone read it? Uh, it's very good, and uh, I want to put this quote up because it's helpful in thinking about how even our political influence, influences can shape the way we, we read the Bible. Oh, man, that's small. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, all right, okay, so this quote says, uh, the, the author is Caitlin Chess. When we begin with political categories and questions, who should I vote for? Which party is more Christian? Which economic system is more biblical? We will miss biblical commands that do not fit our predetermined questions. Our binary thinking blinds us to the way scripture confronts our favorite party or policy. It becomes easier to pick and choose which verses will shape our political work. And it often ends up yielding our spiritual formation to a political party or television network. Suddenly we have moved move from biblical defenses of free market systems to doing hermeneutical gymnastics, that's interpreting the Bible, to defend unbridled self-interest as virtue. So we are all influenced and formed in some way. We all approach politics with biases and influences shaped by many factors. It could be our family of origin, our current or past socioeconomic status, our church background, influences of faith leaders, you know, our education, friend groups, all these things that we are immersed in can influence and inform us in some way. And so in order to have a healthy and biblical and God-honoring engagement with politics, we must, have, we must do the hard work to untangle all the ways politics and faith have been intertwined incorrectly. And then we are to reflect on our own political influences, our biases and leanings, and submit them to Jesus and allow his work to speak into them, or his word to speak into them. And not just some of it, and not just parts that fit nicely with our views, but all of what the Bible says. So we'll look at two verses here. Uh, these two are both written by the Apostle Paul. They have similar form and structure. Both start with a warning to not be a certain way, but instead to be a different way. So Colossians 2, 8 to 10. See to it that no one takes you captive 
by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So uh, we've been highlighting verses recently, which I think seems like people like, so I figured I'd get into that too. Uh, yellow is, our, is kind of the warning. The red is the warning against, and then the green is, you know, what we should be, what we should do instead. And so for this Colossians verse, uh, you can go to the next one, Brian. I like how the, uh, the new English translation reads. It says, be careful not to let anyone t captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy that is according to human traditions. Um, there's more, I think, right? Yeah, and the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. The elemental spirits, that word kind of kind of strange. Uh, the translation's a little tricky. The Greek word, word used is stoikia. In this context, the meaning could be various things, and they, they translate the elemental spirits, but it could mean, uh, the word could mean basic elements that make up the physical world. could also mean the basic, or the elementary teachings of the world, so the basic teachings and philosophies. Or it could just mean literal spiritual beings. So the first one doesn't really work, but the second, the second and third one could fit. So, but either way, the idea in saying elemental spirits, Paul's warning Christians to be aware of the philosophies, basic beliefs, and spirits that operate in the world around us that can captivate us. And we should instead be captivated by Christ's teaching. Romans 12.2 is uh, very, very similar. You know, the warning is do not be uh, conformed, so don't be patterned to the world's ways. Instead, we are to be transformed. So we are to change the way that our mind and our ways of thinking that may be patterned after the world. And we should test and discern what the will of God is and what God would have you do instead. Uh, and also to find what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So what does that look like? What does that look like practically speaking? We, have to, we must be aware of what our inputs are. You know, what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What is forming you? As you ponder this question, what is forming you? You consider that uh, on multiple servers out there in the world, there very likely exists an online personality profile of you that's been crafted over years of tracking your online activities and data. Uh, last month, uh, one of my employees texted me saying that he was very excited to use uh, some cookware they got for Christmas. I think it's like hex pan or if you, something like that, hex clad, right? Uh, and literally five minutes later, I started getting ads for, for this cookware. Crazy. It never had this happen so fast. So we, we kind of live, live in this age where never before has 
the media available for us to consume is so quickly and easily custom tailored to your likes and tendencies. You know, and one of the main goals of the internet and social media is to keep you consuming, right? These algorithms, once they detect what you like, what engages you, they're gonna keep feeding that. You know, they're gonna keep feeding you the content, the videos, the articles that will keep you engaged. And so if you consider this reality, we are fighting an uphill battle to take in the right kind of inputs. And so be aware of that. Be aware of what you're consuming. Be aware of what is forming you and what is not forming you according to Christ. If we are to follow what is laid out for us in Romans 12.2, and to renew our minds and be able to test and discern what is good, acceptable, and perfect, we have to know God's word. This requires reading it, discussing it in community, and we need to allow God, through his word, to form our beliefs and actions, and maybe even unforming some of our beliefs and actions. To be clear, uh, I don't want you to hear me saying that the Bible is the sole source of formation uh, in our political life. You know, there's a lot of room for trusted voices, Bible teachers, authors, commentators, there's also room for research and data gathered by experts in their field. But in order to, you know, as this verse says, test and discern what is good and acceptable, you know, what is the will of God, we need that solid foundation to know what the Bible says. And so to conclude this point, this guideline, uh, in order for us to be formed by Jesus and his word more than we are formed by politics, we have to first identify the political influences and inputs that have formed us, and then submit ourselves to God's word and allow him to reform our beliefs and our actions. So that leads us to guideline number two. Guideline number two, do I have a slide for that? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Second guideline here, in our political engagement, we should seek to, we should strive, sorry, we sh in our political engagement, we should strive to seek the peace. So we're going to take a look at this passage that Pastor Scott read for us earlier in Jeremiah 29. This is a part of the book, it's, it's a, the, the label on it is Letter to the Exiles. And I'm going to read it again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So you'll see in this verse a very familiar phrase, welfare of the city or, or good of the city, which happens to be a third of our church's mission. We exist for the glory of God, the good of the city, and to extend hope through the gospel. And so with this verse, I think it would be helpful to get some uh, some historical context, 
as we look deeper into what, what God is asking of his people here. And you can read this in the book of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, but I'm going to give a quick rundown. So this letter says it was addressed to exiles. Is the Israelites that had been sent into exile by, by the Babylonians. All right, so they had conquered the kingdom of Judah. And at this time in Israel's history, the Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The northern part was called Israel. The southern part was called Judah. All right, so the northern kingdom had already been, they were already conquered. They had gone into exile about 150 years earlier by the Assyrians. And so in this time, in this period leading up to the exile, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, was in a state of persistent political turmoil. Right? There was war, national instability, and the reason was they, uh, geographically, Judah was located between two regional superpowers. So you had Egypt to the south and Babylon to the north. And so they were caught, constantly caught in this power struggle between two empires. And so they were frequently attacked, and their kings had to make perilous decisions about which empire they're going to pledge their allegiance to. And it was a lose-lose situation. Finally, you know, all these years, it finally came to a head. Uh, Judah had a puppet king named Zedekiah. He was installed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He decided that he was going to rebel against Babylon. And this uh, did not make Babylon happy. And so as a result, they sent their army and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem for two years. Uh, in the Bible, it says, uh, that the siege caused a famine so severe that there was absolutely no food left in the city. It was, a, it was a ruthless tactic. And so after the Babylonians had basically starved the city to near death, they breached the walls and completely destroyed the city. They burned down all the houses. They burned down the palace. They burned down the temple. They plundered anything of value and tore down all the city's, city walls. Not only that, they took all of Judah's best and brightest people, the soldiers, skilled craftsmen, all the workers. They took them away to Babylon in exile and left the poorest in the country behind to farm and grow food for the empire. So that's the context of this letter. This is, that's the situation that the readers were in when they read this. It's addressed to people who no longer had a nation, they had endured years of starvation and seen death of loved ones. And there are people who are being sent to a foreign place with a foreign language where their culture and their religion, they were no longer relevant, and they were forced to work for the empire that had conquered them and caused them so much pain and suffering. So that's this letter. You know, what does God say to these people in this context? says, build homes, plant gardens, enjoy the results of labor, start and grow families. You know, God commands them to start over and flourish wherever they end up. Then it gets a little crazy. And God tells these exiles to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on his behalf. 
that's that's pretty radical if you think about the context. You know, in the in the ESV, the Bibles that you know, translation that we use here, it uses the word welfare three times. And the word and the word being translated as welfare is actually the word shalom. Um, you can, Brian, you can put the three verses up. Oh man, that's small. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the primary meaning of shalom is peace. It's also, it's a, it's a deeper, it has deeper meanings, multiple meanings. It can be translated as peace, prosperity, well-being, or welfare. So there's, so other translations have used multiple words. They use the word interchangeably, but it's all the same word in Hebrew, it's shalom. Right, so like you'll see here, we have the ESV, which we read, the New English transla translation Work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for it, for as it prospers, you will prosper. The NIV says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So it's all the same word. So the, it's, what it's saying is seek the shalom of the city. For in its shalom, you will find shalom. So God calls his people to live lives inward towards one another, to start over, rebuild, live peaceful lives. But he also calls them to work outward for the peace and flourishing of, of the new city that, that, you know, they don't know where they're going, but the new city may not be hospitable to them. They were called to seek the peace and prosperity of a new people who they have to live with now. They have to work among them. And these people did not share their religion, did not share their values, and did not share their culture. And they were commanded to view their own peace and prosperity as directly tied to those around them. And so that's, that's a guideline for us. You know, in our political engagement, we should strive to seek the peace. So we should, sh should seek the shalom of the city. Uh, what does this mean? Did I, put a, did I do a slide for this one? Oh, man, so small. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, so what does this mean? What does it mean to seek the shalom of the city? So when it comes to the people who we disagree with, now, we should strive to seek the peace. Uh, we should view our own well-being as tied to their well-being. As, uh, you know, we live and work in the same society. And then we should neither withdraw nor wage war in our political discourse. I'm going to put up one more quote from this book. There's a lot of good, good tidbits from there. Uh, it says, uh, in the aftermath of two contentious elections in 2016 and 2020, Christians may have been tempted to turn away from political activity altogether. We may look at our own recent history and decide that political power is too corrupting, navigating policy issues is too divisive, or making decisions between poor candidate choices is too exhausting. There's something appealing about reading Jeremiah's instructions to the exiles as an excuse for withdrawal from the messy political world. 
We focus on building faithful families, homes, pray for our leaders, and leave it at that. But Jeremiah's words find their place within a larger story of Scripture in which God's people are always oriented outward. We should strive to build flourishing families and churches, but not at the expense of the commission God gave at the beginning and never rescinded, to care for all of creation. This is Genesis 1, 27 to 28. It's good. Um, but it's challenging. It's, it's, it's tough, right? So I admit there's some tension there. You know, sometimes it can be so difficult to seek the peace with those who are just on a total opposite end of the spectrum, right? Opposite end of the political spectrum. Because their idea of well-being, right, their idea of, of peace and flourishing is so different than yours. This is not a new tension. Uh, this, this tension can be seen throughout history. But also it can be seen here, uh, it can be seen in Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. Birmingham jail. Uh, we've mentioned this letter a lot before. Um, it's readily accessible online. If you haven't read it, uh, I rec highly recommend just reading it in full. It's pretty long, but uh, it's very good. So Dr. King wrote this letter from a jail in Birmingham, Alabama. He had gone there to participate in nonviolent protests against segregation and racial injustice. And he was arrested and put in jail on the charge of parading without a permit. And so he wrote this letter, and the context was he was responding to a public statement made by some white religious leaders in the South that voiced their concern that Dr. King's leadership in, in these public, peaceful demonstrations, uh, you know, they had, they had concerns what he was doing. And I'm going to read a, an expert excerpt shortly, but a couple of things that you notice if you read through it. First, and this stood out to me, it's evident that Dr. King's theology, drawn from Scripture uh, and Jesus' teachings, deeply informed his convictions. Uh, it informed his actions and it informed his leadership in this fight for racial equality and justice. The other thing that you'll notice when you read it is throughout the whole letter, you can observe that there is frustration and struggle in holding to this, this tension of seeking the peace, but also seeking change to the unjust laws that were being upheld by government. And despite the struggle that he had, despite these difficulties, Dr. King continuously expressed resolve in this difficult path that God had him take. So I'm going to put up the excerpt. It's kind of long, and I'm no, I know it's going to be small, but I don't want just, just based on the past few slides. But, uh, so keep in mind this context, what he is responding to. Now, so he's not, addressing, like, uh, he's not addressing leaders who were opposed to him, who hated him. These uh, church leaders were actually supportive of, of Dr. King and his fight for civil rights, but they were questioning his actions for leading the black community in these public and nonviolent demonstrations 
and they labeled it as unwise, untimely, and disturbing the peace. Oh, you can put it up. So I did, I did remove... Wow. Sorry, guys. I messed that up. I must have sent like a, like a previously saved version or something. Okay. So I'm going to read it. Hope you will uh, track out with me here. Okay, so here it is. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. At first, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of an extremist. I began thinking about the fact that I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the black community. One is a force of complacency made up in part of blacks who, as a result of long years of oppression, are so drained of self-respect and a sense of somebodyness that they have adjusted to segregation. And in part of a few middle class who, because of a degree of academic and economic security, and because in some ways they profit by segregation, have become insensitive to the problems of the masses. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred and it comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up across the nation. This movement is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incorrigible devil. I've tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need emulate neither the do-nothingism of the complacent nor the hatred and despair of the black nationalist. For there is the more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. I am grateful to God that through the influence of the black church, the way of nonviolence became an integral part of our struggle. And I am further convinced that if our white brothers dismiss as rabble-rousers and outside agitators those of us who employ nonviolent direct action, and if they refuse to support our nonviolent efforts, millions of blacks will, out of frustration and despair, seek solace and security in black nationalist ideology, a development that would inevitably lead to a frightening racial nightmare. So when caught between these two forces, one telling them to wait, do, don't do anything, wait for things to change, and the other to violently fight against injustice, Dr. King chose what he said, the more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. His deep desire was to seek the peace, but also his deep desire was to seek radical change against what was a way of believing and being in the world that was sinful and unjust and did not lead to human flourishing. It is a struggle. It is hard. And so when it comes to those who we disagree with politically, I just want to reemphasize, we should strive to seek the peace. We should view our own well-being as tied to their well-being. We should neither withdraw nor war in our political discourse. And finally, as we conclude for today, when we strive to have this healthy biblical
God-honoring engagement with politics and this thoughtful and great engagement with those who disagree with us, we should remember that uh, our, our ultimate hope, as Pastor Obed said this morning during worship, our ultimate hope resides in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the, at the 2020 uh, Republican National Convention, uh, Vice President, then my Vice President Mike Pence gave a speech. It was to accept their uh, nomination for the uh, for the uh, presidential campaign. I totally did that wrong. They're they're accepting their I guess they're running again. Okay, I'm going to run again. That's what I said. So I remember watching this live. Okay, I remember the speech clearly. And uh, and he concluded it by saying this. He said, he said, let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes and let their courage inspire. And let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and our freedom. And never forget that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That means freedom always wins. So after, after he spoke these words, I was felt flabbergasted, right? The, vest, the vice president had taken verses from Hebrews 12, which said, you know, fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 2 Corinthians 3, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. They mashed them together. He took Jesus out and replaced him with the American flag and sprinkled in some patriotic phrases, land of heroes, freedom always wins, and then out came this monster of Frankenstein, pseudo-biblical pregame speech for you know, getting Donald Trump back in office. As a look, I, the speech writers, they're smart. You know, they know what they're doing. They know their audience. They know what words and phrases to use to galvanize and, and get supporters. Uh, the fact that I was you know, aghast that, uh, you know, they would equate the race marked out for us to, you know, to the campaign trail rather than a faithful life, uh, you know, following Jesus. Uh, you know, that speech wasn't for me, right? It's part of this political game. And so the speech is worth crit critiquing, but it's not the main reason that I bring it up. Uh, the reason I wanted to, to look at this speech or bring it up is because it shows how easy uh, it is to fix our eyes on a political ideology or a candidate or a party or fix our eyes on America or cer certain system of government and take our eyes off of the one who provides ultimate hope. It's understandable, though. You know, why it's understandable why politics can have such a s hold such a sway in our lives. There always seems to be so much at stake. Political outcomes shape governments, they shape policies. These policies have direct impact on our lives, the lives of those around us, uh, sometimes in very significant ways. And so I don't want to minimize how important and significant some of these impacts can be. So it's not wrong to hope for things and seek change for our society for the better. And politics is just one of the tools that, that we have to do so.
But it's very important for us to remember as Christians in our political discourse, in our involvement, that we have a hope that is greater and eternal. In John 18.36, put that one up. I probably didn't put that in there. Anyway, John 18.36, Jesus stands before Pilate uh, while, it, while it's being pulled up here. So Jesus stands before Pilate. Pilate's the governor. He's a man who holds the seat of power in the region. He had the power to determine whether Jesus lived or died. And so with this opportunity to either defend himself or a chance to have a discussion about power, he had a chance to discuss with the governor about ruling and governments, um, you know, he didn't. He wasn't like, "Hey, let me tell you something about democracy. This thing, you know, you should try it." And he didn't say that. So what does he say? Oh, this is John eighteen thirty six. Dorley Bible, you got it. So John eighteen thirty six. Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting." that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my, kingdom, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And I think he was saying, Pilate was being dismissive there. It's like, oh, what is it? Like, who, who knows? So we see here, you know, Jesus uh, you know, is communicating to Pilate the same thing he had been saying throughout his whole time on earth. Despite having power over the physical realm, you know, displayed it through miracles, control over nature, he spent much of his life addressing physical needs, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, standing up for justice, you know, spending time with the poor and vulnerable, speaking out against unjust laws. He enjoyed life. You know, he went to weddings. He ate and drank with his friends. Despite existing uh, and, and doing all these things in the physical, Jesus' primary way of ushering in his kingdom was spiritual. At the end of the day, politics and government are imperfect systems run by imperfect, sinful people. And we live and operate in that reality. Jesus was all about bringing positive change to the world, to the physical world. More importantly, he knew that in order to bring about lasting change to the physical world, the human heart had to be changed. He knew that the problem of sin in the human condition had to be dealt with. And that is why when he stood before Pilate and he spoke about truth rather than defend himself of the charges against him. It's only through Jesus Christ that the human heart uh, can be changed. And that continues to happen regardless of who is in power and what the laws of the land are. And so as we 
transition to communion, I want to ask the uh, band to come back up. Now come to this table. That table, uh, this table re represents Jesus' body and blood. And, and as we, as you come up and take these elements, I want you to just think about, you know, what is it? That, uh, think about that. This, this is what actually changes the human heart. You know, Jesus, the Son of God, died on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins, and his re and his resurrection from the dead to give us new life. And so this, this is the solution to humanity's sinful condition. And so I, I want to invite you to come forward. Uh, this, this table is reserved for the followers of Jesus, but uh, I, I invite you to consider this maybe for the first time. Uh, if you do, uh, let us know. And uh, just take some time to think um, about, about, about God's solution for the human condition.